Blog Talk Radio. Napa know-how. A Napa guy knows more isn't always better, unless we're talking about full-size vans. These beasts do more than get you from A to B. They have so much space a man can live in it. With shag carpeting, waterbed, and a sweet lava lamp, these mobile abodes have all the comforts of home. With quality parts and plenty of Napa know-how, you can keep the original tiny house running longer, stronger. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me tonight is co host Natan Elaine Kemp. Welcome, Natan. It's great to be back, Bernice. Great to have you. Well, I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Now, if you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Now, following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of Afrogenius.com. Well, tonight's show will focus on a very interesting topic, but let me ask you a few questions. Have you found manumission papers of your ancestors? Do you know the backstory related to those papers? Have you ever wondered if the white family members supported freeing your ancestors? Well, tonight's show will take you through a journey, through court documents to help you understand the complexities associated with mixed race inheritances. Bernie D. Jones is Associate Professor at Suffolk University Law School. She is a graduate of the New York University Law School and the University of Virginia Department of History. She is the author of Fathers of Conscience, Mixed Race Inheritance in the Antebellum South. Professor Jones will examine high court decisions in the antebellum South that involve wills in which white male planters bequeath property 
freedom of both to women of color and their mixed-race children. These men, whose wills were contested by their white relatives, had used trust and estates law to give their slave partners and children official recognition and thus circumvent the law of slavery. The will contests that followed determined whether that elevated status would be approved or denied by the courts of law. So let me welcome Professor Jones to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Professor Jones. Hello, thank you, and good night, and thank you for the lovely welcome. I appreciate that I have a chance to chat with you this evening. Oh, I'm just so glad that you're on because we have been chatting, and others have posted on Afrogenius.com, and I've even received email messages concerning this topic tonight. So let's start off with what made you decide to pursue this particular project? Okay, well, this dates back to when I was in graduate school. So it was around the time when I was finishing up my coursework, and at a time when one finishes up coursework, you then sort of prepare for your qualifying exams. And I was reading numbers of books on African-American civil rights issues, especially the historical aspect going back to the slavery era, and I found this great book called um, An Imperfect Union on Mm -hmm. manumission, and the rights of freed slaves from the South who had moved to the North and how that jurisprudence had developed between the North and the South. And I read the story of Mitchell v. Wells in that book, and I was really curious about it. And so after that, I um, chatted with the author of the book, who became a mentor to me, in thinking about how I might develop a project along those lines. And he suggested that I think about this type of project of mixed-race inheritance across the color line, which was a really great topic to work on. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes, plus for for genealogists and especially those of African uh, American descent, we certainly want to know what did you find in those court records or why don't you just let us know how did you do this research? Okay, so I began with an interest in reading appellate decisions from the state high courts throughout the South because the appellate decisions are really crucial insofar as they explain the culture of the community, the culture of slavery, the -hmm. culture of the law of slavery. And so with that, I was able to read all these various cases from throughout the South and develop an understanding of the patterns that were developed as the jurists heard these cases and as the litigants developed their own cases to put before the courts with respect to why they challenged, how they challenged, who the challenges were. So it's a matter of creating this categorization to identify the patterns of what was happening throughout the South. And I did find some similarities across the board. Okay, well, you know, when you talk about these patterns, let's let's just talk about some of the judges. Now, how did they react to such cases, and, and how were the fathers viewed by the judges? And just tell us about some of the challenges. Take as much time as you need. We really okay, want to hear sure. this. <laughs> okay, so a lot of it depends upon the culture of slavery in the individual community and the individual judges. So the important thing is that the culture of slavery enabled disinheritance on multiple levels. So, for example, slaves were considered property. These were people who were not supposed to own property. Yet what happened when an enslaved person is to own property? 
what happens when the enslaved person is a child of his father or his mother is reported to be his father's longtime partner, paramour, so to speak, in terms uh-huh. of some sort of language. And the culture said that the rightful owners of property were to be white people and legitimate family members. Slave partners and children were not family, and they were not legitimate. So uh-huh. it's a matter of how the judges saw them, these people within this culture, these actors, so to speak. So on the one hand, some judges could see these cases indicating a common occurrence in their society, for example, that um, enslaved partners and children who are owned by their masters. That's the one hand where those judges seem to be more tolerant, these understanding uh-huh. of these sort of circumstances. Others seen them as encouraging wrongdoing, illicit sex across the color line, especially because numbers of these men, for example, had never married white women. But all of a sudden uh-huh. they're dead and they leave this will, which is really surprising, where why are they so magnanimous, leaving entire estates to one woman and her children? Uh-huh. Or, they, yeah, or, for example, um, they might have seen the men as degenerate, being taken advantage of. So those are the three general patterns that helped, under, helped me understand, at least, how the individual family members saw the cases. Remember, the men were dead. They were already yes. dead. They and it's a matter dead. of how did the community see them, how did their family members see them, and how the courts then saw them within this culture of slavery. And, again, different possibilities, different justices, different cultures. Are you talking about a southern state that's on the border, like let's say Kentucky? Do you mean the Deep South? All of these you know, had different influences insofar as how the culture of slavery developed, especially after the, especially after the revolutionary period where, for example, in the revolutionary era, because the fervor supported manumission in general, in light of you know, the Declaration of Independence and so forth, the Constitution, but various states began to become more and more conservative on freeing slaves, and mm-hmm. that helped influence their culture by the time the 1800s comes around, the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, and beyond. Well, I, you know, I think when when you talk about the the I guess you would say that the three different aspects of how they viewed the uh, the the planter or the owner, and I mean this is a person who's dead now. So mm-hmm. the community is saying, "Oh, this this happens all the time. We can tolerate that." You might have a different type of judgment versus that where the community says, "Oh, he was a degenerate. Something was wrong with him." And exactly. so you were actually able to actually see this in the records? Yeah. So here, here's the important thing. So um, you have a mixture. So you have a certain instances where there could be some challengers to the will, but you have others within the family who object to the challenge. So you mm-hmm. could see that, for example, in the um, testimony that the appellate court included in its records or in the trial court testimony from the trial court itself. Mm-hmm. Um, in some instances, there were cases where there had been earlier petitions to the courts of legislatures involving slaves and manumission. So it's a matter of finding patterns through the records in the jurisdictions, mm-hmm. certain types of documents that were common at the time regarding slavery and slaves in general. Right, right. But, you know, there, there is a reality. Uh, the, the white men who had children by the enslaved and free women of color were not legally obligated to support their children. So Absolutely why did right. they? Well, 
I see it more as a matter of what you, as you read through the documents and the sort of evidence that came up through the trials, it's a matter of each individual man's own conscience. You know, we're talking about a culture, you know, where people had a far greater sense of religiosity and conscience and Christian duty, so to speak, uh-huh. where he's not obligated to take care of her or them, but he's a man who is living in this culture that permits this sort of thing, or uh-huh. at least he's in a culture that doesn't enable him to do what he really wants to do, perhaps get married and have a family with this person. Uh-huh. And so through his own conscience and his own sense of personal beliefs about what he thinks is right or wrong, that's what followed. Him, for example, leaving a will to them, trying to manumit in some fashion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, this this is just such an interesting, interesting topic. Natan, do you have any questions for Professor Jones? I wanted to follow up a little bit, Professor Jones, on, on what you just said about the judges. And I was curious, did an appellate judge's own personal views about the institution of slavery inform how he decided a case, or did an appellate judge view his duty as enforcing the express intentions of that white male owner who's now deceased, regardless of what the greater society thought, or did an appellate judge view his duty as enforcing the views of the larger society? All those. (laughs) All those. Insofar as looking at various judges. So what I did, it was just a matter of looking at the opinions of the judges in these individual cases. But I looked for patterns of how the justices decided on and wrote about cases on slavery previous to this. Statements that they made, for example, at local community events, commentary on different issues of the day. So I was able to develop a fuller sense of how various justices saw the institution of slavery, which they then brought to the opinions that they heard in these cases. And, and so believe- all of those were, could happen. A judge could have a personal opinion, which supported manumission in general, which supported prerogatives of masters, which supported the institution of slavery and don't compromise it by permitting these types of inheritance rights because, remember, the important thing is these are people who, again, were slaves. They were not supposed to be owning property. They made statements, for example, what would this mean if we have free people of color living like free people in our communities? Think of the example they'd give to the other enslaved people or how they would be seen or see themselves as being equal and on par with whites in the community. So it's a matter of using the law, shaping the law in such a way as to maintain these strict hierarchical boundaries, again, delineated by class and race. And you actually saw this type of wording in in some of the court cases where they would actually raise this issue. Absolutely, absolutely. Because the judges are rationalizing what's come before them, and they're drawing upon all the different types of influences that are there. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I was seeing. Wow. And I noticed, Professor Jones, in your review of the cases, in terms of how judges viewed and approached these cases, I think there was a wonderful contrast with Judge Harris from Mississippi versus Judge O'Neill from South Carolina. Ah, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I'm sorry, you have a question you wanted to ask? I'm just saying that if, you know, if someone takes the time to read your book like we have, they will see how different judges approach 
this matter. And I'm just saying that you had two judges from the Deep South, one from Mississippi, yes. one from South Carolina, but their viewpoints and their approach to these issues were different. Definitely. So O'Neill in South Carolina, he adhered to a more benevolent idea of slavery, that slavery could be beneficial for all parties provided masters were beneficent in dealing with slaves, sort of the paternalism type thing. And towards that end, he was more willing to recognize the prerogatives of individual masters with respect to how to deal with their slaves. Again, recognizing, again, with the culture, that there might be men caught in the bind of this type of situation and their needs and issues should be respected and recognized at least. While mm -hmm. in the Deep South, in Mississippi, far more of a hardliner community, far more of a hardliner culture, the justices, at least in this respect, far more hardline. And remember, too, um, you have some differences that were taking place in Mississippi by the time you get to around 1859. This is the eve of the Civil War, within about a year of the Civil War. Issues, pressure from the North, pressure from abolitionists, mm -hmm. really pushing Mississippians, in their view, to the wall with respect to having to take this hardline position. While O'Neill in South Carolina didn't experience that as much at the time. So we're going to take a break because we want to continue to discuss this. So quick okay. break and we'll be right back. All right. and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host Natan Elaine Kemp. And you have been listening to Professor Bernie Jones, the author of Mixed Race Inheritance in the Antebellum South. That's Fathers of Conscience of Mixed Race Inheritance in the Antebellum South. Now, you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. So I want you to remember that all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. And so, Professor, let's just go a little bit more in detail now, when judges hear in the cases, and you did say a few things about the appellate court and the type of language, just once again, tell us how did they describe the men? Okay, so I use these categorizations, as I said, general categorizations. Number one, um, righteous fathers, you know, fathers caught in the bind. And the, and the language was interesting in terms of describing, you know, paternal feelings, um, certain sentiments, 
even the men themselves in these instances describing why they were doing these things. Um, vulnerable old men, men who were seen as being vulnerable to being taken advantage of, and that's why their will should not stand. Or degraded creatures, sort of like degenerates, you know, low lives who are, again, having sex across the color line, compromising the institution of slavery, not marrying as he should a woman from within his community. And so those general categorizations were the ones I found that really helped me understand how the cases were seen by the appellate courts. Because remember, you, know, you have the family members are all saying that these wills should not stand. Again, in some instances you have a mixed group, some pro, some con, but you definitely have the group saying it should not stand. What's the rationale? And the thing is with will contests, the traditional rationale is going to be that a person who's written a will that should not stand the best way to get it overturned is to prove that the person, for example, had some sort of mental illness, some sort of mental incapacity, that he or she wrote a will, the will should stand because the person wasn't of sound mind. Or you could argue that the person was taken advantage of under some sort of influence of others who overpowered the person's will and then made him do something he or she would not have normally done, should not have done. And so it's interesting how they're drawing upon these traditional concepts in trust in the state's law within this culture of slavery with respect to how to maneuver and negotiate these rights and questions. And that's interesting because when you talk about the righteous fathers, I mean, how many cases did you actually see where they talked about righteous fathers uh, in comparison to those where they wanted to say he was mentally ill? Well, I didn't catalog the actual numbers of cases, but what I can say is that if you look at Chapter 1 of the book, that's where I have the most comparisons amongst the numbers of cases and the types of issues that were raised and within the jurisdictions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the best way to describe it. Yes, it would also be helpful for for those who will purchase the book, I'm certain, that you tell us how is the book organized so that when they start flowing through the book, they will really get a sense of how how you organized it to present it to, to the readers. Yeah, okay, sure. So Chapter 1 is called Righteous Fathers, Vulnerable Old Men, and Degraded Creatures. That's where I discuss the general categorization. And then Chapter 2, um, Slavery, Freedom, and the Rule of Law, you know, I talk about the issues of, again, how to negotiate for that time for those people, slavery and freedom in general. And I focus in particular in, on Louisiana in that chapter. Mm -hmm. Then I focus in the next three chapters on specific jurisdictions from specific regions, from the border states of the north like Kentucky, then South Carolina, and then, um, you know, Mississippi, um, all of those jurisdictions within those three chapters, three, four, and five. And that's where I go into the more in-depth um, analyses of specific cases that I covered in the first chapter, where, again, mm -hmm. you're going to see more of the mix of, you know, community mores, um, a, lot of richer, a lot richer source of materials, because that's where I branched out and I used some more creativity <laughs> yes, in finding yes. other sources to discuss. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then um, finally the conclusion is in um, Chapter 6, and I have a case index, listing of cases. And then, um, let's see, um, 
two well that's in, the second appendix is um opinions on justices written by excuse me opinions on the emancipation of slaves written by the Kentucky justice I write about in one of the earlier chapters and then appendix 3 I provide a lot of supplementary material on one of the chapters, the Willis v. Jolief case, which I cover in Chapter 5. Right. And I probably have a bibliographic essay where you can learn about all the different types of books on slavery in the South and the law. Right. Well, this is this is absolutely wonderful. Well, let's go a little bit more in depth uh, to discuss in some of the cases. Now, one mm-hmm. of the cases you mentioned was uh, a case of Nancy Wells. Mm-hmm. And I want you to just... Explain to the listeners what happened to Nancy uh, in in Ohio and Mississippi. Just give us a, a total overview of what's going on with this particular case. Okay, so Nancy Wells appears in her own chapter, as I mentioned, is one of the cases I talked about in greater detail, where she was the daughter of her slave owner father. And so what I mentioned earlier in the um, discussion that I first read about her case in that earlier book I spoke of. Yes. It, it was her case I was really curious to learn more about, so I spent a lot of time reading more about her. So in her instance, um, she, again, was the daughter of her slave owner, and he wanted to free her. So at the time he wanted to free her in Mississippi, it was impossible, next to impossible, to manumit a slave in Mississippi because, as I mentioned, various states like Mississippi began tightening their manumission rules in how a person could manumit in the state or not. By that time, the requirement had been you had, the person had to have done some sort of major meritorious service to the state of Mississippi <laughs> in order to be manumitted, a very high threshold to meet. He couldn't uh-huh. meet that. So what did he do? He took her to Ohio, sent her, sent her up there, set her up there to either go to school, get training, whatever it was, but he set her up there, sent money for her care, to upkeep her while she was there. Later on, he goes back home. He dies. In his will, he leaves her various personal property items, like a bed or watch and whatever various items he wanted to leave her. Uh-huh. So she wants to inherit the property. Mississippi, by that time, as I described it, is getting more hardline on the slavery question. So they refuse to let her get the property. At the same time, Mississippi sees her as a slave, even though she's in Ohio, and she's seen as a free person under Ohio law. Okay. However, if she goes back to Mississippi, she runs the risk of being accused of being um, a fugitive, being re-enslaved, whatever. So, and I have actually materials that I speak of where you see um, correspondence from people who knew her back home in Mississippi talking uh-huh. about, well, I know you think that we don't mean you well, but you know, really, we really do mean you well, and you know, come meet me in whatever place in Kentucky we can talk about this. And she's writing on her own or talking yes. to others. I'm concerned about this. I don't trust these people. I'm afraid. And so she's talking about how she's feeling in response to all of this and, um, again, how to negotiate her rights. So I'm getting the story behind the story. Yes. So it's not just a matter of, of having just the case, which I speak of in the first chapter, but more details into her life and her life story. Uh-huh. And so now, in the end, you, I don't believe she ever got Okay, in the Mississippi archives, that's where I'd gone. And so okay. I don't believe in the end she actually got the property because, um, you know, the Mississippi court refused to recognize her right to the property. But, yeah, you know, I'm in the, the archives. Um, that's where I did pr- pretty much all of my research in the state archives or historical societies. 
Mm-hmm. And this is something that we all need to know that those records do exist. Mm-hmm. They but do the important exist. thing to know they do. But the important thing to know is that you have to know the name of the person you're looking for. You yes. have to know who owned him or her. You have yes. to know where they lived. Mm-hmm. And you have again, as I said, you've got to know names, names of people, all of their connections, who they were, who owned them, where they lived, when they lived. And mm-hmm. once you have that, you can then go to the census records and any other records that might be in the archives or the historical societies involving these people. Right. Well, let me just uh, ask if any of the listeners would like to call in and ask a question, please call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. Natan, do you have any questions? Yes, I have another question. I, In terms of contrasting different states, in, in the book you talk about how there's this popular misconception about Louisiana and how maybe for those of mixed race it was a little bit easier for them. But I noticed in reading your book you talked about in Louisiana mixed race children of white fathers were at a disadvantage to white illegitimate children when it came to claiming an inheritance. And so these uh, mixed-race children had a more difficult time inheriting. But there was a case from Kentucky, Hubbard's Will, from 1831, where the court found a mixed-race girl had a greater right to the inheritance left by her father than an illegitimate white son. Can you enlighten us on what were the circumstances in the particular case where such an outcome could have occurred? Yeah, sure. So, again, Kentucky, as I might have been uh, mentioning earlier, at least I was thinking earlier, was of a different sort of culture as a border state. The culture was far more supportive of manumission rights and in recognizing the possibility of righteous fathers, you know, the fathers of conscience, men caught in the bind, uh, men who had these moral obligations which the courts were more willing to recognize. And so because the court in Mississippi was more, excuse me, in Kentucky, excuse me, was more willing to recognize those possibilities a case like that could follow where the court looked quite objectively who was the better child in the long run and so she the one who apparently you know spent more time with the father taking care of him respecting him looking out for him while the illegitimate white son was the one who was mean and nasty to his father (laughs) wasn't the better son in the long run and so the court was more willing to recognize her rights as a child as compared to the son that's amazing. That yeah. is amazing. Yes, that yeah. definitely is amazing. And you actually could see the witnesses uh, being brought forward to attest to the fact that the illegitimate child definitely was not uh, the better of the uh, people to to obtain or receive the inheritance? Or if not fully, I'm trying to remember, it might have been a simply a matter of the court in its decision explained that was what they noticed. From the record. So the important thing is I have a mix of materials here. So in some instances I have a lot of records you know, from trial court transcripts, which were attached perhaps to the appellate court decisions. In other cases, it's a matter of doing a very close read of the appellate court decision where the yes. court is actually saying this. The court is actually saying that she was a better child. That wow. is wonderful. Yes, yes. Well, could you give us some some additional uh, examples? I think this is this is just a topic that's so intriguing. Uh, share with us what happened in Barnwell, South Carolina. 
Okay. So Barnwell, South Carolina, similar type case where um, you have the woman and her children, and it's interesting in terms of testimony. So in this instance, there's lots of testimony about how um, he appeared to the community. Because remember, as I said, it's a matter of they want to see was this guy out of his ever-living mind. <laughs> so they're looking to see how did he act in the community? How did people see him? How did people see her? So you have this interesting testimony where they're talking about, well, that she used to have lots of money to spend. Mm-hmm. And what's that all about? So she's freely spending money. She's shopping at stores on credit. She's taking the bills, and he goes to the store later on and pays the bills without question. They see her riding in his carriage. This interesting language of showing how their relationship seemed to approximate what they described as as though she were a white woman and married to him. Yes, yes. And so, and then beyond that, they talk about how, for example, well, his, some of his friends might have gone to dinner at his house, and so she didn't socialize with them, but she was the quote-unquote housekeeper. So she'd cook dinner, then she'd go off on the side, wherever, off to what she was doing. But they noticed the kids would come into the into the living room or dining room area, and he'd play with them, and he'd feed them. Uh-huh. And so parsing all of this, they're trying to figure out what was the nature of their relationship. So when it came time to free them, he did a very complicated maneuver. It's really interesting. He went to Ohio. He found one of the best abolitionist lawyers to make up his will, went back to South Carolina, attempted to liquidate, packed them all up, took them to South Carolina, had the will on his possession. He collapsed in Ohio. He died. Uh. He died in Ohio. Uh-huh. Then you have two different wills because you have a South Carolina will, which was um, signed and attested in an earlier period, plus yes. the later will, which he did in Ohio. And that's yes. the nature of the conflict, determining which will is valid, which will stand, will they get the inheritance. And what was the outcome? They actually won. She won. So there were indications in the records of, um, sending money or reports to, of the executor about reports to whoever about presumably again presuming it's accurate sending uh-huh. money to Ohio uh-huh. and I, you were asking earlier um, about Louisiana so in terms of Louisiana it's a little bit complicated in terms of yes there is a general understanding of free people of color having this benefit of the status in Louisiana but still they were disadvantaged because they weren't of the same status as white children, who might have been out of wedlock as well. Again, the, the lack of the possibility of marital rights, even though these were free women of mm-hmm. color. And mm-hmm. so in, um, some of the, in one of the cases that I talk about, there was a woman who was in a long-term relationship with a white man. He was a planter. When he died, his relatives claimed all of her money was his because what tended to happen was that these men, again, not being able to marry, tended to because it's part of their relationship, support these women, give them houses to live in, give them mm-hmm. allowances, and so forth. So once he's dead, the family's all saying it's all his. But the evidence that came from the community was that she was well known as a businesswoman with her own independent source of income. So this mm-hmm. would have been an attempt to steal her estate because they tried to claim it was really his. I see. But again, an example of the disadvantages. Because under French law, the, excuse me, the French Civil Code inheritance in Louisiana. Under uh-huh. that law, the relatives had a certain right to a certain percentage from the estate, and if yes. it wasn't met, 
where would they go to get the rest of the money? And it's pretty easy. Just say it was hers, really his. That's right. That's right. And they get it. And well, Professor Jones, even going yes. further than that, what if it wasn't a free woman of color? We're in Louisiana, but it's not a free woman mm-hmm. of color. It's someone who's enslaved, and the person tends, intends to free her and maybe children from that relationship. Mm-hmm. But what if the money left in the estate is not enough to free them as well as pay the debts? Well, somebody's got to pay for it, and it's most likely maybe the slaves either be sold or be made to work off the debt. And so that was, again, a problem with a few of the cases, too, where you don't have enough money in the state, so can this person be freed? And that had to be negotiated. So, again, the best cases were those where they were sent out of the state, liquidated, send the money elsewhere, or take them out of the state. Mm-hmm. But the easiest, liquidate, take the money, send them. Ohio was a, a receiving state for a lot of these types of cases. It was well known. Take them to Ohio. You're from Louisiana. You're from Mississippi. Take them to Ohio. Take them to Ohio. Well, there's yeah. a question coming out of the chat, and uh, Jari Honore uh, mentions that he has seen an example where a father circumvented the law by hiring his free children and partner but never paid them until his will. Now, have you ever seen uh, this sort of case? Not in the cases I've seen for the book. No, I haven't seen any of those, no. Because uh-huh. these are all inheritance cases that I'm writing about. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, give us any any more examples to, to help us understand just what's going on here. Okay, in terms of other cases to think about, um, let's see. Um, hmm. Trying to think of other cases. Was there one you had particular in mind? I mean, I can try to look through the book. I have one. Oh, sure. I have one just to highlight mm-hmm. something because mm-hmm. before we forget this, what's at the heart of all of this dispute is money and power, correct? Of course, of and course. And keeping blacks out of that. And yes, you, absolutely. You mentioned a case. It was briefly mentioned in regards to another case from Maryland, but I thought it was very interesting. There was a three-year-old who was denied freedom based on an inability for self-support. Ah, and, yes. And I wanted you to kind of maybe talk about what what all this is about in terms of self-support, uh, sure. not having that time in society. Okay, sure. So the important thing is that members of the jurisdictions – in terms of authorizing, ratifying manumission. So there's a time when, for example, in certain jurisdictions, if a master wanted to free a slave, he or she had to go to the courts or to the legislature and provide documentation proving that there was some justifiable reason or not, whatever it might be to have the person be freed. The important thing that's part of the justification, for example, they might say, well, certain sentiments, certain, you know, whatever it is, the morality type issues, I said, the, the um, moral reasoning behind it, or meritorious service, whatever it might be. But the important thing is that the slave states who permitted manumission at this time did not want the slaves to become a public charge because traditionally masters took, ter- excuse me, took care of all their slaves' needs. If they were free, the concern was, how will they take care of themselves? Are they capable of doing so? So 
if the masters could prove that they were capable of doing so, the courts, legislatures, whomever, were more willing to recognize the manumission. Wow, and so that explains why probably this case was from Maryland, and, and this was decided by the highest court in Maryland. They decided that this three-year-old's freedom was denied. Because he's just a three-year-old child. Right. And he could not support himself. Yeah. Now, you know, I, I read in your book, and, and it, it was just one sentence, but you, it did kind of make me think. You said that, you know, one of the options, of course, was to try to support the child putting or the child and the mother by putting um, funds in the will. Another mm-hmm. was to make it possible as an option uh, that they, you know, would say, well, they're willing to, to go back to Africa. And you mentioned the American Colonization Society. I mm-hmm. thought that was kind of interesting. Say more about that. Yeah, sure. So at that time, in terms of manumission rights, this goes back to around the 1820s, where whites in America were thinking, what is the best way to deal with the slavery problem, the problem of the slavery? Where, for example, the northern states were becoming more and more free states. Um, if you want to free your slaves, what's the best way to do it? Should you have them stay in the United States, or do you want to have them be expatriated? So the American Colonization Society were willing to take slaves who were to be freed by their masters and expatriate them back to Africa. So Liberia was founded by freed slaves. Sierra Leone, that's the British version uh-huh. of you know, freed slaves sent by the Colonization Society to Africa. So, again, the master could um, leave them in the will to the society, and the society could take care of it. Or, again, leave funds aside to have them be sent. But this is different from those cases I have here where they intended that they would remain in this country. Yeah. So that's a different yes. track. But it was another possible track, at least, for those yes, who wanted to was, their it, it was an option uh, to, um, for them to consider. Yes. Quite interesting, quite interesting. Well, if anyone would like to uh, make a comment or ask a question, please call uh, 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. That's 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. Well, let's just talk for a minute about the influence of changing manumission requirements over time Mm -hmm. on the judicial decision-making process. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in particular, Mississippi as an example, and even some of the states in earlier periods, as I mentioned, the revolutionary period contributed to numbers of the states developing very liberal manumission requirements in terms Mm -hmm. of being very easy to free slaves. However, after, for example, Denmark V.C., where you had the Nat Turner Rebellion, after the slave rebellions, this is like the early 1800s or so, more and more slave societies, slave communities, are becoming afraid of the presence of free blacks in their midst. Mm -hmm. So they begin to make the requirements tougher and tougher, if not impossible, as I mentioned Mississippi by the very end. You have to give meritorious service to the nation or the state, something of that nature, a very high threshold. So that pushes, if anything, these men to use these types of legal arrangements and extra-legal strategies to manumit, of making a will in the state, send them elsewhere, 
send them elsewhere, liquidate, so forth and so forth. While previous to this, it would have been fairly easy. Just file the paperwork or just you know, write whatever papers need to be written up, file them with the local clerk's office, and it was taken care of. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so you could find those many mission petitions in the um, archives. Right, right. Now, since we're getting close to the end, and I'm just going to, to open the floor for those in the chat room to just ask as many questions as you can, uh, what kind of tips would you give to those who are doing research in the archives, national or state, or on their family history, just what tips would you give them? Okay. As I mentioned earlier, key points, know names. Know the names of the people you have in mind. Nicknames are fine, but also whatever full names of the people you have in mind and also of their owners. Know the communities that they lived in, who the people were in those communities, um, when they lived, where they lived. Because what are you trying to do? You're trying to find opportunities to look for all the records that could ever possibly be relevant to your case. Uh So you're looking for, for example, wills. You're looking even for um, contracts of sale, for land, whatever those might be. Census records. So certain census records by around, I think, 1850 or so actually included names of slaves or slave schedules. Uh So you can find information about slaves in those uh, records. Um, Uh Once you have even the names of the masters, you can sometimes find the connections to other masters or whites in the community involving actions, sale, again, sales of land, court records. All these different types of documents can really give you a full sense of what's out there. And again, it depends, too, about what your archives in your state looks like. Some archives, South Carolina, hats off to South Carolina, great archives in South Carolina, and um, you can really find a lot in terms of legislation. For example, were there ever petitions to legislature about these people? Um, were there ever um, documents filed the local clerk's office, freedom papers? So there were all kinds of documents. But the first thing is you have to know the names. And from there, it's just a matter of using your imagination and just going through whatever might possibly be there in the yeah. jurisdiction, in their archives. Right, right. And what about those, let's say in Louisiana, you may encounter records that are in French or in Spanish? Well, well you've got to be able to read those languages. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm lucky in that. You know, when I was in, in graduate school, we were required to be able to read at least one foreign language. I mean, so that was a benefit to me insofar as doing the work in Louisiana, where there wasn't all that much I needed to read in French, but if I needed to, I was able to, like in one of the instances, um, the materials in the case were written partially in French. I was able to translate it without a problem. So if uh-huh. you're working in Louisiana, work up on your language skills. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you're so right as far as you must have a name. You must be able to, you, you have to have an idea of who you're looking for and what you're looking for, and you can't do that without a name. Exactly. Uh, a so older relatives. Older relatives. Talk to your older relatives. The stories say no. A lot of this comes down to oral histories within people's yes. families. Uh-huh. Oral histories, older relatives, papers. You might have papers, maybe family Bibles. You might have information from family Bibles. So those can be good sources of your own private information within your own family history that could give you a head start. Right, that at least, you, as you said, give you a head start. Natan, do you have any questions? 
Uh, Professor uh, Jones, I wanted to follow up. You mentioned something uh, before. Uh, the free black population, was this part of the reason why, from the greater society's perspective, there was this fear of either former enslaved women and their mixed-race children inheriting? Oh, absolutely. So the important thing is you have in the North and the South, you have these divergent cultures over slavery. The North tended to end slavery a lot earlier. So, for example, states like New York, um, New Jersey, they had what was called gradual manumission statutes where after the revolutionary period they said by a certain date there would be no more slavery or that it would be gradually abolished. So you have by the 1820s or so large populations of free blacks in the North. The North was a beacon for escaped slaves or those being manumitted to go to. Pressure from the North amongst abolitionists included black abolitionists, putting pressure upon the South. So they were concerned not only about the free black population in the jurisdictions within the South, but the possible influence of free blacks from the North, especially in light of the slave rebellions, that here you have groups of people who have their rights very much similar to what free white people have. They're able to move around freely. Quite often they might be able to read and write. So they have all of these skills, especially when, of course, their fathers might have had them trained to learn certain trades or skills, whatever those might be. So they're developing skills. They have access. They're concerned, the whites in the South, about what that could mean for the long term. Right, and, and I, you know, I noticed in your book, you, um, and I'll just quote you out of your book: "No free blacks could emigrate into, you know, certain states, and yes. each free black was obligated to register with the local authorities." Right, exactly. So that's another source, for example, of documents. Were they registering in the community? And they wanted that again because they wanted to be able to keep track of who all the free blacks were. They were like, you know, a wild card. They could do anything. And they were really afraid of a population of free blacks, especially a growing population of free blacks. Uh -huh. so they were to be carefully controlled in these jurisdictions that were so worried about them. Uh -huh. And I guess during this period you could just see more and more laws uh, being uh, written and enforced just so that the free blacks would not be, quote, as free as the uh, white citizens in the community. Yes. So in for certain instances, for example, the courts would say, well, if you want to free them elsewhere, that's perfectly fine. Free them elsewhere, take the money elsewhere, but they cannot live freely in our state. Okay. Well, Nathan, any any more questions before we close out this, this, this very interesting discussion? I just want to say one more thing, and that is, um, Professor Jones, you mentioned in your book, particularly about Mississippi, as the uh, opportunities for manumission diminish, the hurdles got higher and higher. And I believe you discuss how individuals, uh, let's say a white planter, would have to have a bond posted, again, to yes. make sure his the people who he's trying to free will not become a public charge. So it was almost virtually impossible, and that's why these men would basically have no other alternative but try to take them out of that jurisdiction to free them, correct? Yes. And so the issue of the bond is an important one because that was part of, as you were describing, 
which I included in the discussion, of the various rules and requirements to constrain the rights of free blacks. So, for example, have them be registered, have the master place a bond. Again, because if everything became a public charge, how would they be supported? So place a bond you know, with the court and use that money in case they couldn't support themselves. Because, again, they'd been traditionally taken care of, in theory, by their masters. And the masters took care of all their needs. So what's going to happen once the masters are no longer in the picture? Yes, yes. And Angela Walton Rogers just put a comment that in 1859, the Arkansas expulsion law made all free blacks leave the states. Mm-hmm. Not surprising. Not surprising. Not surprising at all. And not well, the only this, place, I'm sure. I'm certain that we probably have other individuals in the chat who could pro- perhaps give <laughs> examples of what they have found. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been just a wonderful discussion, and I would certainly want to encourage all of you, if you have not purchased the book, Fathers of Conscience, Mixed Race Inheritance in the Antebellum South, that you do so tonight. And it, Professor Jones, Professor Jones, I'd like to thank you so much for just talking to us tonight about this topic. And everyone else, please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sewell Smith at the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute next week. I look forward to all of you joining me, not next Thursday, but the following Thursday, because I'm going to also be at the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute in Fort Wayne, Indiana. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, with co-host, Natan Elaine Kim. Good night, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. <laughs>